To speak of a 19th century libertarian critique of fascism might seem anachronistic, since fascism is generally understood as a 20th century phenomenon. But it did not spring from nothing, and the libertarians of the 19th century saw it in the making. Fascism differs from its close cousins, communism on the one hand, and aristocratic conservatism on the other, in several important ways. Let's begin with its difference from communism. First, where communism seeks to substitute the state for private ownership, fascism seems to, seeks to incorporate or co-opt private ownership into the state apparatus through public-private partnership. Thus, fascism tends to be more tempting than communism to wealthy interests, who may see it as a way to insulate their economic power from competition through forced cartelization and other corporatist stratagems. Second, where communist ideology tends to be cosmopolitan and internationalist, fascist ideology tends to be chauvinistically nationalist, stressing a particularist allegiance to one's country, culture, or ethnicity. Along with this goes a suspicion of rationalism, a preference for economic autarky, and a view of life as one of inevitable but glorious struggle. Fascism also tends to cultivate a folksy or folkish man of the people, pragmatism over principles, heart over head, pay no attention to those pointy-headed intellectuals' rhetorical style. <clears throat> These contrasts with communism should not be overstated, of course. Communist governments cannot afford to suppress private ownership entirely, since doing so leads swiftly to economic collapse. Moreover, however internationalist and cosmopolitan communist regimes may be in theory, they tend to be just as chauvinistically nationalist in practice as their fascist cousins. Well, on the other hand, fascist regimes are sometimes perfectly willing to pay lip service to liberal universalism. All the same, there is a difference in emphasis and in strategy between fascism and communism here. When faced with existing institutions that threaten the power of the state, be they corporations, churches, the family, tradition, the communist impulse is by and large to abolish them, while the fascist impulse is by and large to absorb them. Power structures external to the state are potential rivals to the state's own power, and so states always have some reason to seek their abolition. Communism gives that tendency full reign. But power structures external to the state are also potential allies of the state, particularly if they serve to encourage habits of subordination and regimentation in the populace. And so the potential always exists for a mutually beneficial partnership. Herein lies the fascist strategy. The respects in which fascism differs from communism might seem to align it rather more closely with the traditional aristocratic conservatism of the Ancien Régime, which is likewise particularist, corporatist, mercantilist, nationalist, militarist, patriarchal, anti-rationalist. But fascism differs from old-style conservatism in embracing an ideal of industrial progress directed by managerial technocrats, as well as in adopting a populist stance of championing the little guy against elites. Remember the folksiness. If fascism's technocratic tendencies appear to conflict with its anti-rationalist tendencies, well, in the words of proto-fascist Müller Vandenbroek, we must be strong enough to live in contradictions. Some of the differences between fascism and the older conservatism may be due to the advances won by their common foes, the liberals. The progress of liberalism and of industry had the effect of shifting wealth, at least in part, from the traditional aristocracy to new private hands, thus creating new private interest groups with the ability to operate as political entrepreneurs. Hence, perhaps, 
the tendency toward the emergence of a plutocratic class nominally outside the traditional state apparatus. <clears throat> Likewise, the progress of democracy meant that plutocracy could hope to triumph only by donning populist guise. Hence the paradox of an elitist movement marching, marching forward under the banner of anti-elitism. A prime example in U.S. history, that we just heard from Walter, being antitrust laws and other allegedly anti-big business legislation being vigorously lobbied for by big business itself. Hence fascism's odd fusion of privilege and folksiness. One might call it a movement that thinks like Halliburton and talks like George W. Bush. <laughs> the partnership between the official state apparatus and the nominally private beneficiaries of state power was a familiar theme for 19th century libertarians like Frédéric Bastiat and Gustave de Molinari, who extended and radicalized Adam Smith's critique of mercantilist protectionism as a scheme for benefiting concentrated business interests at the expense of the general public. In Molinari's words, businesses asked the government to safeguard their monopolies, their monopolies by the same methods that it had put into effect for protecting its own. Libertarian sociologists like Charles Comte and Charles Dunoyer had developed an entire pre-Marxian theory of class conflict, according to which the key to the position of the ruling class is not, contra Marx, access to the means of production, but rather access to political power. When Marx called the French government a joint stock company for the exploitation of France's national wealth on behalf of the bourgeois elite and at the expense of production and commerce, he was only echoing what libertarians had been saying for decades. Herbert Spencer likewise complained of the influence of railway autocrats in American politics, overriding the rights of shareholders and dominating over courts of justice and state governments. Lysander Spooner denounced the financial and banking elite, writing as follows. Among, quote, among savages, mere physical strength on the part of one man may enable him to rob, enslave, or kill another man. But with so-called civilized peoples, by whom soldiers in any requisite number and other instrumentalities of war in any requisite amount can always be had for money, the question of war, and consequently the question of power, is little else than a mere question of money. As a necessary consequence, those who stand ready to furnish the money are the real rulers. The nominal rulers, the emperors and kings and parliaments, are anything but the real rulers of their respective countries. They are little or nothing else than mere tools employed by the wealthy to rob, enslave, and if need be, murder those who have less wealth or none at all. The so-called sovereigns in these different governments are simply the heads or chiefs uh, of different bands of robbers and murderers. And these heads or chiefs are dependent upon the lenders of blood money for the means to carry on their robberies and murders. They could not sustain themselves a moment but for the loans made to them by these blood money loan mongers. In addition to paying the interest on their bonds, they perhaps grant to the holders of them great monopolies in banking, like the banks of England, of France, and of Vienna, with the agreement that these banks shall furnish money whenever in sudden emergencies it may be necessary to shoot down more of their people. Perhaps also by means of tariffs on competing imports, they give great monopolies to certain branches of industry in which these lenders of blood money are engaged. They also, by unequal taxation, exempt wholly or partially the property of these loanmongers and throw corresponding burdens upon those who are too poor and weak to resist. End quote. As this quotation from Spooner shows, 19th century libertarians also saw a connection between plutocracy and militarism and sharply criticized what today would be called the military-industrial complex. Spencer, for example, railed against the military aid and state-conferred privileges enjoyed by the East India Company, which enabled it, he says, to commit deeds of blood and rapine in India 
where the police authorities league with wealthy scamps to allow the machinery of the law to be used for purposes of extortion. Such abuses, Spencer noted, were mainly due to the carrying on of state management and with the help of state funds and state force. Had the military might of the British Empire not been placed at the disposal of the company's directors, he says, their defenseless state would have compelled them to behave differently. They would have necessity have turned their attention wholly to the development of commerce and conducted themselves peaceably. Writing in the mid-1800s, Spencer complained especially of the grievous salt monopoly, which would, of course, become the chief catalyst for the Indian independence movement nearly a century later. But who, Spencer wrote, are the gainers? The monopolists. Into their pockets in the shape of salaries to civil and military officers, dividends of profits, etc., has gone a large part of the enormous revenue of the East India Company. The rich owners of colonial property must have protection, as well as their brethren, the landowners of England. The one their prohibitive duties, the other their corn laws, and the resources of the poor, starved, overburdened people must be still further drained to augment the overflowing wealth of the rulers. End quote. Thus plutocracy, these libertarian writers thought, drives militarism. But they also held that militarism drives plutocracy. Thus the American Spencerian William Graham Sumner argued, quote, Militarism, expansion, and imperialism will all favor plutocracy. In the first place, war and expansion will favor jobbery, both in the dependence and at home. Jobbery, a wonderful old word for rent-seeking. In the second place, they will take away the attention of the people from what the plutocrats are doing. In the third place, they will cause large expenditures of the people's money, the return for which will not go into the treasury, but into the hands of a few schemers. In the, fourth, in the fourth place, they will call for a large public debt and taxes. And these things especially tend to make men unequal, because any social burdens bear more heavily on the weak than on the strong, and so make the weak weaker and the strong stronger. End quote. While the influence of private wealth and government was not ex exactly anything new, 19th century libertarians tended to think it had been given a new impetus by the rise of democracy and its inevitable accompaniment to interest group politics, what the French liberals called ulcerous government. A number of libertarians argue that representative democracy leads to a struggle for political influence among competing special interest groups. And unsurprisingly, it's the wealthier and more concentrated interests that tend to win out. Sumner, for example, maintained that democracy far from being, as is usually supposed, the arch-enemy of plutocracy, is actually plutocracy's crucial enabler. Quote from Sumner, The methods and machinery of democratic, republican self-government, caucuses, primaries, committees, conventions, lend themselves perhaps more easily than other political methods and machinery to the uses of selfish cliques which seek political influence for interested purposes. End quote. And by the way, for Sumner on this, I highly recommend... Scott Trask's article in a recent uh, Journal of Libertarian Studies. But on this point, writers like Sumner were simply developing the implications of James Madison's remark in The Federalist that the extreme mutability to which representative governments are liable is likely to work to the benefit of a wealthy minority. So here's Madison. It will be of little avail to the people that the laws are made by men of their own choice if the laws be so voluminous that they cannot be read are so incoherent that they cannot be understood, if they be repealed or revised before they are promulgated, or undergo such incessant changes that no man who knows what the law is today can guess what it will be tomorrow. Another effect of public instability 
is the unreasonable advantage it gives to the sagacious, enterprising, and moneyed few over the industrious and uninformed mass of the people. Every new regulation concerning commerce or revenue, or in any way affecting the value of the different species of property, presents a new harvest to those who watch the change can trace its consequences, a harvest reared not by themselves, but by the toils and cares of the great body of their fellow citizens. This is a state of things in which it may be said, with some truth, that laws are made for the few, not the many. End quote. And Madison, in his turn, was drawing on the ancient Athenian argument that electoral systems are actually oligarchic rather than democratic. Uh, in the 19th century, both libertarians and Marxists were complaining about the power of wealthy elites, but they disagreed on the remedy because they disagreed on the origin of the problem. For the Marxists, plutocracy was a product of the market. The ruling class emerged through commerce and only subsequently seized control of the state in order to consolidate its already established hegemony. Marx himself was ambivalent on this question, but Engels solidified the orthodox Marxist position. Hence, for the Marxists, it was the market that needed to be suppressed. This is the origin of the left-wing view that fascism is simply a manifestation of free market capitalism. For the libertarians, by contrast, a ruling class depends for its power on the power of the state, and so it is the latter that needed to be suppressed. The libertarians did not, however, make the mistake of supposing that state power by itself was the sole problem. Since rulers are generally outnumbered by those they rule, these thinkers saw that state power itself cannot survive except through popular acceptance, which the state lacks the power to compel. In Spencer's words, in the case of a government representing a dominant class, the very existence of a class monopolizing all power is due to certain sentiments in the community. Likewise, Charles Dunoyer writes, The first mistake, and to my mind the most serious, is not sufficiently seeing difficulties where they are, not recognizing them except in governments. Since it is indeed there that the greatest obstacles ordinarily make themselves felt, it is assumed that that is where they exist and that alone is where one endeavors to attack them. One is unwilling to see that nations are the material from which governments are made, that is, from their bosom that governments emerge. End quote. Or again, as American anarchist Edwin Walker pointedly asked, if statism were the cause of all social evil, what on earth could be the cause of statism? Nineteenth-century libertarians, then, tended to be radical or dialectical thinkers in Chris Cabarrus' sense, they viewed state power as part of an interlocking system of mutually reinforcing social practices and structures, and were intensely interested in the institutional and cultural accompaniments of statism, accompaniments which both drew support from and provided support to the power of the state. It is in their analysis of these accompaniments that we see them grappling with the specifically fascist aspects of statist culture. Writers like Dunoyer, Spencer, and Molinari saw a close connection between statism and militarism because, in their view, the state originated in war. Tribes that succeeded in fending off invaders became increasingly dependent on their warrior class, while tribes that failed to fend off invaders became the subjects of the enemy tribe's warrior class, and in either case, the warrior class was thereby positioned to become a ruling class. Dunoyer and Spencer also saw a reciprocal relationship between statism and militarism on the one hand and patriarchy on the other since they regarded the rule of men over women as the original class division from which all later ones grew. They would thus not have been surprised to see fascist movements glorifying military conquest on the one hand 
and the patriarchal family on the other. They would also not have been surprised to notice that fascism takes its name from the fasces, the Roman symbol of an axe and a bundle of rods. A bundle of rods by itself indicated that an official had the power to inflict corporal punishment. Adding an axe to the bundle of rods implied the power to inflict death as well. Bastiat regarded the prevailing reverence for ancient Rome as a pernicious cultural influence. He wrote as follows, quote, What was Roman patriotism? Hatred of foreigners, the destruction of all civilization, the stifling of all progress, the scourging of the world with fire and sword, the chaining of women, children, and old men to triumphal chariots. This was glory. This was virtue. The lesson, lesson has not been lost, and it is from Rome, undoubtedly, that this adage still comes to us. One nation's loss is another nation's gain, an adage that still governs the world. To acquire an idea of Roman morality, imagine in the heart of Paris an organization of men who hate to work, determined to satisfy their wants by deceit and force, and consequently at war with society. Doubtless a certain moral code and even some solid virtues will soon manifest themselves in such an organization. Courage, perseverance, self-control, prudence, discipline, constancy in misfortune, deep secrecy, punctilio, devotion to the community. Such undoubtedly will be the virtues that necessity and prevailing opinion would develop among these brigands. Such were the virtues of the buccaneers. Such were those of the Romans. It may be said in regard to the latter that the grandeur of their enterprise and the immensity of their success has thrown so glorious a veil over their crimes as to transform the crimes into virtues. This is precisely why that school is so pernicious. It is not abject vice, it is vice crowned with splendor that seduces men's souls. End quote. Rome, incidentally, was another culture in which plutocracy triumphed by adopting a democratic guise. Spencer was convinced that Western culture in his day was entering a retrograde phase, a phase he called rebarbarization, in which the values of industrial society, the society of voluntary cooperation and mutual benefit, were yielding once more to the older values of militant society, of hierarchy, regimentation, aggressive impulses, anti-intellectuality, and a zero-sum view of human existence. Spencer saw evidence of rebarbarization not only in official military policy, but also in cultural developments, as, for example, in the increasing militarization of the church, or the recrudescence of what he called the religion of enmity. Spencer was distressed to observe that, quote, in the church services, in the church services held on the occasion of the departure of troops for South Africa, he was talking about the Boer War, certain hymns are used in a manner which substitutes for the spiritual enemy the human enemy. Thus, for a generation past, under cover of the forms of a religion which preaches peace, love, and forgiveness, there has been a perpetual shouting of the words war and blood, fire and battle, and a continual exercise of the antagonistic feelings, end quote. Another cultural development that Spencer identified as a, system, a symptom of rebarbarization was the rise of professional sports. In Spencer's words, quote, Naturally, along with exaltation of brute force in its armed form, showing how widely the trait of coerciveness, which is the essential element in militancy, has pervaded the nation, pervaded the nation, there has gone a cultivation of skilled physical force under the form of athleticism. The word is quite modern for the reason that a generation ago the facts to be embraced under it 
were not sufficiently numerous and conspicuous to call for a word. In my early days, sports, so-called, were almost exclusively represented by one weekly paper, Bell's Life in London, found, I am told, in the haunts of rowdies and in taverns of a low class. Since then, the growth has been such that the acquirement of skill in leading games has become an absorbing occupation. Meanwhile, to satisfy the demand journalism has been developing, so that besides sundry daily and weekly papers devoted wholly to sports, the ordinary daily and weekly papers give reports of events in all localities, and not unfrequently a daily paper has a whole page devoted to sports. (laughs) While bodily superiority is coming to the front, mental superiority is retreating into the background. Thus, various changes point back to those medieval days when courage and bodily power were the sole qualifications of the ruling classes. While such culture as existed was confined to priests and the inmates of monasteries, end quote. I suspect Spencer would not enjoy chanting War Eagle in the Auburn Stadium. (laughs) (laughs) Such symptoms of militarization and barbarization in the arena of culture proceeded in tandem with analogous changes in government, including a shift in power from civilian to military authority and within the civilian government from parliamentary to executive authority. In 1881, Spencer referred to the measures then being taken in Germany, quote, for extending directly and indirectly the control over popular life. On the one hand, there are the laws which up to middle of last year, that would be 1880, uh, 224 socialist societies have been closed, 180 periodicals suppressed, 317 books forbidden. On the other hand, may be named Prince Bismarck's scheme for reestablishing guilds, bodies which by their regulations coerce the members, and his scheme of state insurance. In all which changes, we see progress toward the replacing of civil civil organization by military organization, towards the strengthening of restraints over the individual and regulation of his life in greater detail. End quote. And Spencer saw England beginning to follow in Germany's footsteps. He noted with alarm, quote, a manifest extension of the militant spirit and discipline among the police who, wearing helmet-shaped hats, beginning to carry revolvers, and looking upon themselves as half-soldiers, have come to speak of the people as civilians, end quote. And he objected to, quote, the increasing assimilation of the volunteer forces to the regular army, now going to extend of proposing to make the volunteer forces abroad, so that available abroad, so that instead of defensive action for which they were created, they can be used for offensive action, end quote. A few years later, on the other side of the Atlantic, Voltairine de Clare noted analogous developments in America. Quote, Our fathers thought they had guarded against a standing army by providing for the voluntary militia. In our day, we have lived to see this militia declared part of the regular military force of the United States and subject to the same demands as the regulars. Within another generation, we shall probably see its members in the regular pay of the general government. End quote. At the time of the Spanish-American War, Sumner was writing of the conquest of the United States by Spain, meaning that the United States, while victorious over Spain on the battlefield, was succumbing ideologically to the imperialist ideas that Spain had traditionally represented. And E.L. Godkin, the editor of The Nation, at that time a classical liberal periodical, wrote despairingly in 1900 of the eclipse of liberalism. Quote, Nationalism, in the sense of national greed, has supplanted liberalism by making the aggrandizement of a particular nation a higher end than the welfare of mankind 
it has sophisticated the moral sense of Christendom. This is the old sense of the word sophisticated. Made sophistical, not made fancy. We hear no more of natural rights, but of inferior races, whose part it is to submit to the government of those whom God has made the superiors. The old fallacy of divine right has once more asserted its ruinous power, and before it is again repudiated, there must be international struggles on a terrific scale. At home, all criticism on the foreign policy of our rulers is denounced as unpatriotic. They must not be changed, for the national policy must be continuous. Abroad, the rulers of every country must hasten to every scene of international plunder that they may secure their share. To succeed in these predatory expeditions, the restraints on parliamentary government must be cast aside. End quote. In short, the 19th century libertarians observed the rise of the various tendencies that would come together to make fascism. Militarism, corporatism, regimentation, nationalist chauvinism, plutocracy in populist guise, the call for strong leaders and national greatness, the glorification of conflict over commerce and of brute force over intellect, and they bitterly opposed the whole package. And although they ultimately lost that battle, their fallen banner is ours to pick up. Let me give Sumner the last word. He's writing once again of the Spanish-American War. Quote, The reason why liberty, of which we Americans talk so much, is a good thing, is that it means living people, leaving people to live out their own lives in their own way while we do the same. If we believe in liberty as an American principle, why do we not stand by it? Why are we going to throw it away to enter upon a Spanish policy of dominion and regulation? The scheme of a republic which our fathers formed was a glorious dream, which demands more than a word of respect and affection before it passes away. Their idea was that they would never allow any of the old social and political abuses of the old world to grow up here. There were to be no armies except a militia, which had, would have no functions but those of police. They would have no court and no pomp, no orders, ribbons, decorations, or titles. They would have no public debt. There was to be no grand diplomacy, no reason of state to cost the life and happiness of citizens. Our fathers would have an economical government, even if grand people called it a parsimonious one. And taxes should be no greater than were absolutely necessary to pay for such a government. The citizen was to keep all the rest of his earnings and use them as he thought best for the happiness of himself and his family. He was, above all, to be ensured peace and quiet while he pursued his honest industry and obeyed the laws. No adventurous policies of conquest or ambition would ever be undertaken by a free democratic republic. Therefore, the citizen here would never be forced to leave his family or to give his sons to shed blood for glory and to leave widows and orphans in misery for nothing. It is by virtue of these ideals that we have been isolated, isolated in a position which the other nations of the earth have observed in silent envy. And yet there are people who are boasting of their patriotism because they say that we have taken our place now amongst the nations of the earth by virtue of this war.